This is Inside the Writer's Head with Danny McLean, the Library Foundation of Cincinnati and Hamilton Counties Writer in Residence for 2020. The Library Foundation's Writer in Residence program promotes writing, literacy, and creativity while furthering the library's mission of connecting people with the world of ideas and information. Welcome to Inside the Writer's Head. I'm your writer in residence for 2020. On this podcast, you can expect conversations with writers and other lovers of books, journalism, libraries, and the literary arts. Today, I'm proud to welcome Luna Malbro. Named one of KQED's Women to Watch, Luna Malbro is a comic, writer, and creator of the award-winning play, How to Be a White Man. Note, she is not a white man. Winner of the Comedy Hack Day Grand Prize at San Francisco Sketchfest, Luna has made international headlines as the creator of Equitable, an app that satirically solves the wage gap by creating, quote, reparations one meal at a time, end quote. A regular contributor to national publications, Luna has been featured on Fusion TV, Al Jazeera Plus, and Refinery29. Welcome, Luna. Thanks, Danny. It's so nice to be here. <laughs> Thank I'm you. I'm so for glad. Me. Of course. I'm so glad you could make time. Of course. So set the scene for us. Where are you right now? Describe your surroundings in this particular pandemic moment. Ooh, right now I am in cold San Francisco. I am where I just bought a sweatshirt to wear in July because yes. it's so cold. Yeah. And I live in Cincinnati, but I had to get away for a bit to have a little mini pandemic refresh. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, thank you for that reminder that like the Bay, well, not the East Bay, but yes, yeah, San Francisco is chilly in the summer. Um, there's that so famous cold. Mark Twain <laughs> quote that I won't even try to uh, I won't even try to say, but yeah, it is pretty cold in the summertime. Um, and but you live here in Cincinnati. And how long have you lived in Cincinnati? I've only lived in Cincinnati for about three years. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been three three years since I moved to Cincinnati. And where are you from originally? I grew up in Louisiana, rural rural Louisiana, a town called Opelousas. Um, and I left Opelousas. Well, I went to undergrad at Southern University and lived in New York City for a few years and then moved out to San Francisco for like seven years and then came over to Cincinnati. So I've done all the, all the, all the regions, all the regions. Yeah. And so our listeners know we are both, um, you know, people who have lived in the Bay Area for a stretch and we have mutual friends who tried to make sure that we met up once we were both here in Cincinnati. So shout out to the Bay and to those of you in the Bay who made sure that Luna and I got to know each other because it's been such a joy getting to know you. It's been so, so lovely. You. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and this is really a treat for me because you, as we will discuss, like you are such a accomplished writer um, and we really know each other as friends, not as like, um, not really professionally. So it's a real treat to just be able to sit and have this opportunity to talk to you about craft and about this, um, about writing, which we both love so much. So thanks again for being willing. Yeah, absolutely. So just this week, you sent me a link to a performance that you did last month. 
and mm-hmm. I laughed, I drooled, I hung on every word. It's about sex, power, desire, um, and somehow also it's about this moment of national uprisings and police violence against black bodies. So could you talk a little bit about um, about that piece and specifically about your process for writing it? I'm curious who who is the audience that you had in mind? Yeah, thanks, Danny. So the piece is entitled When You Want to Be Into BDSM, But It's Too Soon Because You're Black. <laughs> What's <laughs> yeah. really funny is that I had originally written this for Splinter slash Gawker slash Jezebel slash The Room slash Univision. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, who, who is this for? But it was my first published piece of writing actually in 2016, and I updated it because a friend of mine, Jennifer Lewis, um, does this literary review show called Red Light Lit, and they were social distance filming readers read stories. And so it's so interesting that I wrote it in the beginning of 2016 when there was like a similar time. Um, Mm -hmm. And then I'm I'm sort of having this like, uh, I don't know if I'm the only one, but I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one, but I feel like it almost feels like Groundhog's Day and that the feelings that I felt the summer of 2016, I'm feeling those feelings this summer. Um, right. So it's almost so cyclical. And I I, I refreshed the piece of quite a bit and um, expanded on things, just a, just, just a few things here and there. And I'm like, you know, still still hits. It's still very true. I'm yeah. still not ready for BDSM. It's still too soon. Um, right. And it's still, like, exploring. I think I think if, if we roll back on the salaciousness of, uh, you know, BDSM, wherever you are on the spectrum of, like, how comfortable you are talking about sex, I think the thing that I'm really sitting with in my writing in, in all sorts of ways is the performances we play out in our daily lives um, and the mask we wear just being human and just being black. And like where the question I've been having is like, where is it truly safe to be black fully? Mm -hmm. And I think that piece is for me, that's the subtext. That's the question that I'm asking. Like, is it safe for me to be black even within my own sexuality? Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's what. <laughs> yeah, that's so powerful. And so, what? Um, talk about the updates from 2016 that you made. So, you talk about you mentioned um, Breonna Taylor and Tony McDade and George um, Floyd. So you're you're kind of you know this is an update from the summer of 2016 when we were mourning the loss of Alton Sterling and uh, Philando Castile. So you obviously kind of updated that were there other considerations or other ways that your I don't know experiences or perspective has shifted in the past four years um, that are reflected in the piece yeah slightly I think I I feel like I've had some um, perspective about even like the the person that I so I'm so sorry to use this word Danny I know you're going to know the meaning but I know you're guessing (laughs) not the person that I entangled with. Yes, <laughs> it's the entanglement. Talk the about entanglement. that entanglement, honey. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thank you, Red Table Talk, for giving us all. <laughs> Thank you, Jada and Will, for giving us all. 
giving us a whole new vocabulary. Yeah. I've always been grateful for data. I made Man. data, and it did it did not stop with entanglements. I'll tell My you. My group chat way. blew up post entanglement, <laughs> and I came out a real Will fan. I must say, I am. Oh yeah, Will is yeah. the MVP. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt yeah. you. Go ahead. So the person no, with whom no. you entangled, the person, the with person whom you entangled, who I'm entangled, I was able to have like. Um, I was able to have some perspective about even like when I was dating in 2016 of the very superficial. And that is something that I added because looking back now, it's just kind of like this person is clearly not someone who is on my level (laughs) and talking about like (laughs) racial justice and racial equity, you know, and I, I felt a little bit of shame. And I, even Mm -hmm. at the time when I wrote it in 2016, I felt shame of like, Luna, what are you doing? You know? And, to write um, and to share something so personal, I think that I'm already feeling a lot of, like, I, I feel a lot of judgment around, like, okay, you're writing about, go, like, having a BDSM experience with a white man. Like, I just hear mm-hmm. the voices in my head of, like, why are you doing that? Who? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and how did you choose this person? So I I just uh, – and. I didn't know, I do it as a few other things. Those voices in my head, I just speak to those voices and I just like write for those voices just to be like, let me put it all out. Oh, wow. What was going on. So that, I expanded on that. Um, and I expanded a little bit. Um, in the beginning, I talk a little bit about all the different ways that it's really hard for me to drop into role play sexually because I just think about things too much. I think I even added this joke around, like, you want me to role play, like, secretary, and right. I'm already thinking about how much I'm underpaid. And then, like, well, if you want me to role play being the boss, I'm frustrated. I don't have time for this anymore because I have to prepare with the meeting with the board. Like, that, yeah. that's... I, and yet that's so real. I mean, I love that <laughs> because, I mean, that's the beauty of good writing, right? It feels like you're writing this personal kind of specific experience, and you are, and yet it's successful because so many other people can identify with that. Yeah. I, and I don't even know that other people can identify with it, but I just, it just felt very true to me. I'm I'm just in my head so much, and... Right. It's just nice to put it out on paper. <laughs> yeah. So what's it like performing comedy and storytelling in this new physically distanced format, um, whether you're doing it via Zoom or via, like, face- Facebook and Instagram Live? And I think for this show that we were just talking about, you were actually in a studio socially distanced from a musician who was playing piano beneath your monologue or beneath your reading. Mm-hmm. But there was no audience or it was like still very kind of, you know, COVID safe. What's it been like performing under these circumstances? Well, it's interesting because I'll say that piece was so different than anything else I've ever done because uh, it was a piece that was written in my own voice. And I, um, so to perform that, typically if I've performed anything, it's either a joke or it's comedic, super comedic. are like somewhat removed from me. So that was the first time I read something that immediately as I started reading it, I was like, oh, there's no character to hide this under. This is really me. Mm -hmm. And I was like locking eyes with the cameraman and I could like, 
as I'm saying these very personal details, like I've always had fantasies about being like dominated, like locking eyes with a cameraman, like 12 feet in front of it was, it was definitely a different experience because I've said all kinds of things and I feel comfortable saying all kinds of things as a quote unquote uh, stand up are in character in a play, but to say it as myself is a very different experience. Um, that made me a little nervous. But when it comes to uh, all these other mediums of, like, exploring creativity, comedy, and all these things, it's actually been really freeing for me to transition to online spaces. I really miss the audience, but there's the pressure uh, of, like, the cadence of laughter as a stand-up community mm. that I started to feel. And there's something about this new medium where... I kind of feel like we're creating a whole new type of art and performance in the moment. And I feel a lot of freedom from that because I'm not feeling the pressure of the cadence in the same way. And I'm exploring all sorts of new ways of playing with humor and truth and storytelling. So that's fascinating. So what, so is it like, since you don't have to have an ear out for laughs, you can kind of like take your time and crack yourself up and like, or um, can you talk a little bit more about what you mean about how it shifts the pacing and how that opens up space for you to be creative in a different way? Yeah. So what I think, and I haven't heard anybody say this, uh, <laughs> but this is my, my instincts around comedy. I think true comedy is about rhythm. It's like mm-hmm. really about rhythm. And there's everybody has their own rhythm. People's pace are completely different. But generally, the laughter, there's comedians who, like, get in a super uh, fast-paced rhythm with laughter. Like, they, they get laughter every 10 seconds and they craft their jokes for, like, every 10 mm-hmm. seconds they're like, I'm going to create this rhythm this way. And the, the, punch, uh, the punch lines are um, accentuated by laughter. And the laughter of the audience is part of the act. And, uh-huh. like, the audience becomes part of the, the, the act with that rhythm. So the interesting thing that I feel like um, in shifting online, I'm still playing around with rhythm, but now I've, like, explored musical comedy. Just, like, one example. I've explored musical comedy of, like, now the rhythm could be, like, uh, piano chords to accent my joke versus mm. the laughter of the audience. Or the rhythm can be a pause or me making a face or um, I, I did a performance recently where it was pre-recorded. So uh, other, like even YouTube comedians and YouTube personalities and like we see like the talk show hosts now, like the rhythm that they use are um, like images to punctuate mm-hmm. jokes or, right. you know, so I've, I even tried to, I even incorporated that like for the first time, like editing my, my own self and adding like comedic images on top to like punctuate what I'm saying, but that was the rhythm. So it's still, it's still creating a certain uh, pace of, of joke telling, but it's like utilizing other things to have the rhythm other than the laughter from the audience. Wow. I love that. I mean, I'm, we're connected on Facebook and I don't know, other social media platforms that I, have definitely noticed like oh cool um luna's playing ukulele now like here's luna what were you were you singing like 
I don't know why I'm having like an. Were you singing Alanis Morissette or who are you? You did some I incredible. Was singing, oh, that's so funny. <laughs> yeah, I was sing, I sang Bob Marley and I've been singing. Oh, Fiona Apple. I'm Fiona Apple. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've been like playing around. I've been also exploring mu- like music a little bit more. Um, and really just started picking up piano over the past year and ukulele very recently was like my first COVID five was like, okay, (laughs) I need something, you know, to do. (laughs) Yeah. That's really cool. And I, and it's interesting to hear how it's all wrapped into your thinking of your comedic performances and your storytelling. That's, that's really interesting. So, um, so you created the play, How to Be a White Man, which I've seen described as a satire exploring your life as a black queer comedian. You can correct mm-hmm. me if that is not an accurate description. But so do you have plans to write? Well, I guess first, if you could talk just a little bit about that play, is it a one person show? Like kind of what was the format? And I'm curious if you have plans to write more plays. Um um, yeah, or if that was just kind of like a one-off adventure that you're happy to let live on its own. No, I definitely have plans to write more plays, and I actually got into a Bay Area uh, uh, Women's Playwright Festival back in April. I, um, you might ask me this later, but I need deadlines for me to write, and uh-huh. the best way for me to write is when someone's like, can you write something? And I'm like, okay, fine. Um, right. <laughs> and yes, so I got same. approached to write a play, like a theater company first approached me and was like, we think you could write a play. Well, the funny thing actually was um, a publishing company after Equitable reached out to me and they were like, uh, this was like in, in 2016, I, I feel like I like had a mini um, blow up, like a mini mm-hmm. come up that I'm still riding the waves of, but I definitely don't feel like I'm in the same space of like that, that moment in the sun. Um, mm-hmm. But it's, that's part of, that's part of the nature of performance and entertaining and writing and blah, blah, blah. So whatever. Yeah. Um, but one of the things is a publishing company reached out to me, which was really cool uh, for me. And they were like, we think you can write a book. And I felt very overwhelmed by that. And I was like, I don't know if I can write a book, but I can write a play. Uh-huh. And so the the play came about because I could not write a book, but I'm like, I know, like I have like 60 minutes of stand up and I'm like, I know I could get to create like an hour and a half of live entertainment because that's like in the wheelhouse that I mm-hmm. of what I did. So there are actually two variations of the play. The first iteration was a large cast. It was maybe like nine folks and it was uh-huh. uh a culmination of scenes and it was very um both versions of the play were very immersive theater very you know very like i wanted the play to be interactive with the audience um the second version of the play was just me and a white guy uh my good friend kevin glass who was in both versions with me um and we had they're, they're like the, the voices in my head the ancestors that i just told you about like the the voices that are like criticizing me lovingly who are telling me that I could do better. (laughs) Right. Urging you along. Urging me along, but also being very critical and how I show up for my black people. Like it's like Mm. both of those things. Mm. I personified them in both versions of the play. And so in the play, like there's like, 
three real-life women playing the ancestors. And in the second version, they're projected on screen throughout the play. So they kind of like, you know, which I think was really cool. We wanted to make them holograms, but that wasn't possible. Wow. <laughs> it was a limited budget. But, um, yeah, that kind of – that felt more um, just like closer to them being in my head. So, anyway, yeah, so the play was two different completely plays, <laughs> complete – complete um different versions of the play and i want to ask you i think the thing for me is like this is it's it's time has changed so much like i think in 2015 when i first started writing it 2016 when it first came and then 2018 it was a little bit more people were a little bit more tongue-in-cheek with satire and like mm-hmm. culturally there was more trends of like um I don't know, like making fun of white dudes in a certain way, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> like that, that I definitely was a part of, but I hate the very strong word, but I would say I almost hate the title now because I feel mm. like the, that so much has shifted where I think for satire to be really good, it has to be like of the moment and of the time. Yeah. And I just don't think we're in that tongue in cheek playing games we're right <laughs> we're not we're not there right now it's not yeah it's not yeah <laughs> that's an interesting point i'm thinking of um baratunde thurston had a book called how to be white uh mm-hmm. oh how to be oh, black right yes i'm sorry that's right how to be black <laughs> how to be black yeah. um but it's kind of in that same you know um even i mean he is a black man and at that point that was I don't know, maybe around the same time. And it was like when the black blogosphere was, it was pre-Twitter, right? So it was Mm pre-black Twitter. So we had the black blogosphere. Yeah, I think there was an appetite for this kind of like mocking essentialism around race and like Mm -hmm. mocking kind of like, yeah, like cultural being super essentialist around culture. And so I, I can see what you mean about that title feeling very much of a moment very much of a moment and what's funny is baratunde uh is one of the founders of comedy hack day so that okay. where equitable came through like i actually spent a, a good bit of time with him and we we've still stayed connected and it's funny because i had bought his book i'd seen him talk maybe a few years back and i'm like oh he's so cool you know and he is really cool but it's for for him to become someone that became a colleague was like really awesome. And I had read that book, uh, how to be black. And then this British comedian, Catherine Moran wrote how to be a woman. And I read that book too. Yeah. And I, and I jokingly, even before I even knew what the play would be called, I had joked a year before, like after reading both of their books, I'm like, well, I want to write a book called how to be a a white man because you know, Mm -hmm. how to be black and how to be a woman were already written. (laughs) Yes. That's funny. I forgot about that book. I read that. Um, I think I book, it's a book of essays, right? How to be a woman. Yeah. 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 I remember reading that too. Um, that's a trip. Yeah. That was the kind of like how you constructed your title back. Like there were a few years where like that was the path, you know? Right. Um, that's funny. Yeah. So do you think about, do you think about revising it? Or do you think for your next playwriting venture, you'll move on to new, like, different content? I think I want to move on to different content. There are some aspects of 
that play that I, I definitely think I could expand on. Uh, I think that, that the feelings of looking for what does it mean to, what, what does it mean to make it? What does success look like? Uh, mm-hmm. are questions that I think I could ask in new ways. And the play that I was gonna write before coronavirus hit, um, was a play inspired by, uh, a friend of mine who, whose father is pressuring her. She's a black woman. She works in the medical field. She has a very, like, respected job, but her father is pressuring her to go into magic be a magician yes. mm-hmm. and <laughs> her father was a Tuskegee airman and I'm like this is the silliest most delightful thing I've ever heard in my whole entire life it's delightful that's the perfect adjective for it it's absolutely delightful it's delightful and what I'm really excited to create and put out there is like more art celebrating black joy and yeah. really like uplifting black joy and I'm like what a better like there's so much history and just those two things like and just so much history and so much mystery in that this man who was a Tuskegee airman, um, and, you know, an older black man, a black man in his 70s, is just like, look, magic. That's the key. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right. It's just perfect. It's good. <laughs> so you said you were going to get into that pre-COVID. What, is it on the back burner now? It's on the back burner because um, – one, what I, you know, I do outside of create creativity, I do a lot of work around um, racial equity and trauma. And what I'm understanding as I learn more and more about trauma is just like, you know, the, the more we're able to feel safe, the more we're able to feel like adjusted. Um, yeah. The, the better we'll be able to create and be. And I just feel like when COVID hit, I, I was just in this, state of like survival I'm still probably in a state of survival um and it's just hard for for me to really be imaginative I think I'm what I've been doing is like writing my truths and I've been journaling more but to be in a space of like pure imagination has been challenging for me at this time when so much is shifting in my life and in the world around me and I just feel genuinely scared about this country and the state (laughs) you know what I mean I'm like so it's hard to be in a space of like not like playful magician, you know. But, right, right. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's that's so real. I mean Yeah, thank you for just being really honest about that. I feel like a lot of us are struggling, um, given that we're in the midst of a global pandemic, we're teetering on a global recession and we are in the midst of a national rebellion that has led the way to like reckonings around race in every industry and every like institution. It's it's a bit of a moment. And I think a lot of people are just, um, you know, there's, this is the U S right. Capitalism and like can do be can do attitude and um, like putting on a happy face is the name of the game. And I think a lot of us are just pretending that we can carry on with business <laughs> as usual. So it's really refreshing to hear you be like, you know, if, if only just for yourself to really be creating space to journal and like take care of yourself and slow down and not be so focused on producing. Um, so, yeah, thanks for that. Yeah. And I think, I mean, not to get too deep, but I think one thing that I've, uh, 
been really sitting with in this time of space is really exploring how much of my self-value I put on on how much I can produce, yes. on how many, like, accolades I got, on, like, what's published or, like, how many people saw this. And what's really been great for me is that, like, shifted so much since the pandemic started. And, I mean, you mentioned <laughs> me singing and playing music. I don't think that I do those things well, but I'm like, that's okay. I'm being creative mm-hmm. and I'm exploring something and I want to – I, I personally make the decision where that I want to model that versus modeling perfection. And I want to model like just, just the process of figuring stuff out versus going like, look at this polished thing that I've right. been working on for like eight years. You know? Right. And please know that that's really inspiring. Like, you know, to, I really love getting on Facebook or IG or whatever and seeing you at your piano or seeing you with your ukulele. And it's just, um, it's fun to watch. I mean, cause you're like entertaining and it's great. And I get to sing along or just like be mesmerized, but it's also a reminder to chill and play and have fun and laugh and be light. You know, um, I appreciate what you said about, you know, this kind of, um, this is not the word that you used, but like addiction or preoccupation with like accolades. These are my words because I, you know, Mm. I can get into that groove as well. And one of my, you know, I've realized that like one of the ways that I've coped with this period of time and all the uncertainty is just to take on a ton of work and really Mm -hmm. acknowledging like, Oh, this is a coping mechanism. Like I don't want to, I don't really know what to do but I know that it's healthy. It's not healthy to just sit and scroll on Twitter and like take in all these images of like the police bashing people's heads in and whatnot. So I don't really know what to do with myself. So let me just take on a bunch of assignments. Um, And Mm -hmm. I think it's important for, you know, for folks self-included to kind of use this time to realize, yeah, how we use work. Um, So I'm speaking very much for myself, not putting that on you, but uh, it's been a moment for me of really, coming to terms with like I like what I do and it's great and I find a lot of value and meaning in it and also are there ways that I'm abusing work you know are there ways that I'm using it to um, deal with the uncertainty and the anxiety that this moment um, you know creates so yeah mm-hmm. yeah it's so thoughtful Danny <laughs> it's so real <laughs> yeah well it's you know it's like uh what else are you going to do when you can't leave your house? But get real deep with yourself and do therapy on yourself all the time. <laughs> like, it's perfect moment to go deep. It is the perfect moment to go deep. <laughs> so one of the things that I really admire about you is you seem to have – we haven't even talked about Equitable um, at length, and if you want to talk about that in the context of this question, that's great. But you're really able, you've like written play, you've written a play, you write for the internet, you um, you wrote and kind of developed content related to this app. Um, you really seem to have a lot of confidence around writing and across genre. And so I'm curious, how did that come to be? Did you have to build up confidence to believe that you could try these different types of storytelling? How did, how have you done that? Yeah, I wouldn't say it's about confidence. I think it's about being a product of the gig economy Um, and just being in a place where for so long, um, 
even now it's kind of like someone is like, can you do this? And I'm like, yeah, Mm. (laughs) how much Mm -hmm. does it pay? You know what I mean? So it definitely (laughs) comes from being, uh, I have a job now. I work with a creative agency, but um, definitely comes from like being in a space of freelancing for so long, where it's just kind of like, I think that I can make that work. And just there's something about stand-up comedy. Um, what I I would say, like, I I did not have much confidence as a writer before doing stand-up. But my mm-hmm. confidence has increased after stand-up because there's, like, even though you can, like, write uh, jokes beforehand, there's so much that changes in the moment. And there's mm-hmm. so much that is adapted on stage. And I, it's funny, I... I, I keep on, I think part of the reason why I keep on exploring different genres is because another genre is too intimidating for me. So I'm like, well, let me do this. Oh. Um, and um, I think that I really, I still want to, like, I've, I've written a couple of pilots and I've gotten into uh, a few rounds of, like, development. Uh, for TV or, shows. Just for TV shows. What, like, a few rounds or one a few competitions where it's just like, okay, now we'll put you in front of Comedy Central and we met with Comedy Central, and they're like, we'll pass on this, uh, but nice meeting you. So it's like I'm getting closer to those rooms. Um, but I think the thing about what, what gives me confidence is the act of, like, having to write in the moment for stand-up just mm-hmm. to fit different audiences in a moment or in mm-hmm. an hour um, has just built the muscle of making me feel like anything is possible. And so I think there's been just so many shows or so many things where it's just like, we need to do X, Y, and Z. And so I have to fit it for that. And that muscle, I think, translates really well when it's like, we need you to write, but we need you to write for this genre or we need you to write for this show or. Yeah. um, That makes a lot of sense. And so, um, yeah, because I imagine you do, perform in front of a lot of different kinds of audiences. And so um, what what was it like starting to perform for Cincinnatians, right? Or like, you know, in the Midwest after yeah. performing in the Bay Area? It was so different. Um, it's, it's so different, but not that different. I think that what I... It's so interesting. I just I just read Ali Wong's book, Dear Girls, and she has this whole chapter about like don't if you're like she started off in um, San Francisco, and we know a lot of the same people. But it was just like if you stay in San Francisco too long, like you'll be used to just like making jokes to the same people who agree with you, and that right. is true. <laughs> yeah. And I think the thing is, I missed that bubble when I came to Cincinnati, and. I do have a lot of stuff that is, I feel like is more universal, but there's definitely a kind of like preaching to the choir thing in, in the San Francisco comedy scene that I w- could go a lot harder and push the audience a lot further than I can in Cincinnati, right? Like, so, mm-hmm. I don't know. Like, I don't know. I would just berate white audiences in San Francisco. You know, <laughs> right. and be like, all y'all racist. And you know what I mean? You know, and they love it. Yeah, exactly. I know. I, I love know. it. They're like, yes, tell me more about how terrible <laughs> I am. Exactly. Exactly. That is not fly in Cincinnati. 
<laughs> right. They're like, no, we don't want to hear that. Please talk mm-hmm. about a uh, beer or something. Um, <laughs> I'm so mean, right? I'm sorry, Cincinnati. No, we like our beer. We've got good microbrews. What are you going to do? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that was, that was like a slight shift. And I think the thing is, like, how do I still stay true to my voice? But I think it actually makes me a better uh, writer to have to think about that because how do I keep the subtext of the same? How do I still say the same thing? Uh, but, you know, sneak attack it, which is yeah. what really good comedy is, you know, to make oh, it a wow. little bit more subversive. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about your writing process. Um, how do you do it? So you mentioned that you basically would not write without a deadline. Is that... Do you keep a writing schedule to keep yourself, you know, busy even when you don't necessarily have a deadline that you're writing towards? What's your process like? Oh, no. I think um, what I've just started getting better at journaling more and putting my thoughts down on a regular basis. Um, I would say I'm a marinator, mm. heavy, heavy marinator, and I – let's say for the plays and essays that I've written, I'd say 90% of my time is mulling it over in my head. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, and really like thinking, like mulling it over and like having conversations with people. And then maybe 10% of the, the time that I actually quote unquote spend writing is like me typing it up, putting it down on paper and like revising it. But but I I sit with something for a long, long time. And I think um, it's really helpful for me to, for someone to tell me, hey, (laughs) we need this essay by this, or can you write this? Because I will, I mean, I'm actually, there's like several writing. I actually asked you about it a a few months ago. I'm like, how do I choose the next project? Because there's several different writing projects I'm really interested in doing, but um, there's just all of them would be so expansive that mm-hmm. I'm kind of overwhelmed. And but at the same time, I'm marinating on all of it. Yeah, um, I so appreciate so, yeah. that we're marinating. I, you know, I think it, it it took me a long time to realize that 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 is part of the process that I'm actually working during those walks that I take or those conversations that I'm having with somebody where we are touching on related issues, right? It's like, that's the work. That's not um, procrastinating. That's not distracting yourself. That's all part of the process. Yeah, that's the work. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I am such a, what I've learned about myself is that I really work better with other people in a lot of different ways or just to have someone to play off of. Um, and just one of my favorite moments, one of my best examples of that, I think, is in creating Equitable because the idea was mine, but the execution was definitely that of a team. And uh, George Chen is, like, one of the most talented comedic writers I know. He lives in L.A. now. And, Luna, just talk for a second about the idea behind Equitable. Yeah, so basically the I, I had a friend of mine um, – Elisa Chement, who would always say, she was a MBA, you know, business friend, and that's not my world at all. But just in our friendship, like just in joking around and clowning, she would always say, what gets incentivized gets done. And that was always in the back of my head. And, um, you know, Comedy Hack Day was a thing that Barry Tunde Thurston and Adam Peterson and a few other guys, like, 
put together. And so I heard about it, didn't think much about it, but, you know, and um, decided to go. And I think I had seen some stuff at the time around uh, the pay scale and like, oh, you know, um, the pay gap is real. And I kept on, even a few, now it's changed, but a few, a few years back, you'd always hear like women earn 77 cents for the dollar, but as a black woman, I knew that was very different right? black women. And I was very annoyed that um, black women, Latino women, Native women were left out of that conversation, um, just being like, it's not 77 cents for the dollar. It's like very different. Right. Um, and I just, like, I had the thought of, like, well, what if, like, people could personally pay me reparations? (laughs) Right. You know, so it's just the concept of that is basically you go out to dinner with friends and the cost of the meal is determined by, like, your gender and your race and, like, what how how that falls aligned on the U.S. zero uh, statistics on, like, just on pay scale. So... It's really just a, what I thought it was, me being a social worker, uh, having a social worker background, our phrase is meet people where they're at. So it's a combination of meet people where they're at and what gets incentivized gets done um, mm-hmm. is kind of like the background of that. And just like, hey, like you – and I and I actually think – and it's interesting because some – what's really funny about it, Danny, is that when it blew up, I got like, you know – it was uh, helping people. It was like all over the place. The Atlantic, like so many people were writing about it, and and, and other countries were exploring it too. But there were several um, organizations that work for equal pay would hit me up and say, "Hey, can we use this app for our initiative?" And I said, "Danny, I said, yeah, pay me." And they were like, uh-huh. "Oh, I'm sorry, we don't have the money to pay you." And I'm like, "I'm sorry, you're asking a black woman right. who created an app." <laughs> Right. On equal pay to use her app to do your work that promotes equal pay, but you don't want to pay me? Oh, like the two big organizations. The I'm levels. not going to name names. The yeah. levels. It's just so funny. It's just like, really? Like, you really not, you're not going to. Like, no have, irony. Yeah, no, I understand <laughs> the irony in this. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, that was really funny. Um, but the team of people that I worked with, they're like UX designers and um, coders and, you know, other comedians and writers who made it so good because in the app, there's all these like inside jokes. Uh, like there was like, you know, you can set, you can set your group on like how diverse you are. And because we had a really diverse team, I think it made the jokes funnier, right? Like, you know, we were George Chan's Asian, um, and like just to think about like well what would what would a, a black and Asian table be called you know and we're like rush hour <laughs> oh wow like, yeah just like so we wanted pop culture references we wanted to keep it light um, and it I think is important even as just writing comedy to have as many different folks represented as possible so it's not me making the jokes about like you know you know like what was it I think. I think it's like black and Latino, uh, that, that group, that table. We, I think we put Raiders fans, uh, <laughs> you, know <what> I mean? <laughs> you know, Oakland Raiders fans, um, yeah. for folks who don't know the Raiders, but yeah. So it's just like, 
it, the more voices, uh, the richer something is comedically. Right. Right. What are you reading? So it's so funny that you asked me that, Danny, because the book right in front of me, the book that I'm reading, even though I've had it for a year, is uh, Pleasure Activism. Oh. And you're in that. (laughs) I am. Yeah, it's by the great Adrienne Marie Brown. Yeah. Who is a dear friend. Yeah. How are you finding it? What do you What do you think so far? Uh, I it's it's so interesting. I I wish I would have read it when I first bought it a year ago. <laughs> you know. Yeah. But sometimes things gotta sit. But it's um, it's really good. It's really dense. Uh, and every every chapter is so thoughtful that I I I have to really take my time with it to to again use my my word marinate. Um, to let yeah. things marinate on me because it's just like, I don't know, I feel like I'm kind of, I almost feel overwhelmed by how profound it is mm. and how many questions it brings up for me and how I live my life. So I highly recommend Pleasure Activism. Um, I did get to your chapter. That was really cute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, you know, the one of the reasons it is so dense and varied is because she brings in so many different voices and perspectives. It's like interviews with different people and, you know, analyzing other people's work. And um, yeah, it's a really, uh, and I, I think in this moment where things can feel really hard and we might need reminders about the importance of bringing pleasure into our lives and that it's not like a luxury, right? It should be central to life and we, it is our birthright. Um, I can see how it would be a really good moment to, to read that book. Mhm. Yeah, for sure. Anything else on your nightstand or your coffee table? Uh, I just finished reading Wow No Thank You by Samantha Irby. And I told you about it in friend conversation, but I will say it on the podcast. This yeah. book really blew my mind. Like, she is someone, I, I think for, for me, being a comedic writer, like, not to talk trash, but there's a lot of people, comedians and people that write books, and, like, a lot of stand-up comedians that write books, but this was, I think, the funniest thing that I've ever read. Oh, wow. And, yeah. High praise. High praise. Like, I, and I'm just like, whoa, this is legitimately funny. Like, I laughed out loud. And there's some, it was so vulnerable. Vulnerable isn't the right word. It was just so honest. It was, like, a type of honesty that I feel like I haven't really seen. Because I, I even think in a lot of comedic books, there's still a little bit of that, like, veneer, I'll, I'll just call it Instagrammy shine oh, <laughs> to oh. people's words and life. It's just like, this is so cool and so cute. But, like, I think there's something about the way Samantha Irby writes. It's just like, no, like, I have diarrhea all the time. And it's horrible. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just like, <laughs> right. you know, like, that is re- it's refreshing. It's really refreshing to see that. Yeah. Okay, well, I feel like that title keeps coming up again and again as a recommendation in my life, So, and I need to laugh, so I will uh, make a point to pick that up. Luna, how can people follow your work? You can follow me at lunaisamerica.com. Uh, it's my website, and I'm lunaisamerica on Twitter. Um, follow me on Twitter. On Instagram, it's more personal, and I'm really bad at posting. <laughs> but, yeah, follow me. Um, Luna is America. My last name is really hard to spell. 
And uh, that was like a call back to Langston Hughes, I Too Sing America. And even now I'm just like, do I? <laughs> but it's, you know, it's all that's, that yeah, that's interesting. I didn't, I didn't get the reference. That's cool. Thank you for explaining that. I know that you did a cross country road trip that was related to collecting stories at one point. So I figured it was mm-hmm. uh, a reference to that. Yeah, even before that, I was thinking about like uh, that, um, and it, and then it did, and it, it's so funny because I feel like I like jokingly had that or called myself that and played around with that, and then it's like I do feel like I'm very, my writing is very American or like my uh-huh. frame of reference is very American because I'm all I'm literally all over the place all the time. Yeah, yeah, you are. I can't keep up with you. And you've got Southern Roots, educated in New York and the South, and now in the Midwest, but, like, constantly jet-setting out West. So, yeah, it's very fitting, very fitting. Luna, thank you so much for joining me on Inside the Writer's Head. It's been such a pleasure to sit and get to nerd out with you about words. I really appreciate it. Yeah, same. Thanks for having me. It's been It's been so much fun. Good. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Inside the Writer's Head. Keep joining us for in-depth conversations with writers and other lovers of journalism, libraries, and the literary arts. See you next time. Special thanks to the Library Foundation for funding the Writer in Residence program. You can meet Danny at various events throughout the year. Learn more by visiting Cincinnati Library dot org slash writer in residence. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss future episodes and leave us a review. It helps other book lovers find us. Thank you. Thank you.